the theme of James. If God indeed is sovereign and we're His people, then we ought to respond in a different way to Him than the world responds to life. So it will both challenge us to test ourselves to see whether or not we are truly in the faith. In other words, he's saying, if you say you're a believer, then you ought not to think this way anymore. You ought to think the way God thinks. And that will lead to change in behavior. It's not just a book of do this and do that. Don't do this, don't do that. If we just make behavioral changes without the heart changing, then we become legalistic, pharisaical. God's after heart change, not just behavior change. If the heart will change, the behavior will change with the heart. We sang a new song this morning. I really enjoyed that. I hope to see it reappear. And there was a line I jotted down this morning right in the middle of worship because it was such a good line. You are wisdom unimagined. You are wisdom unimagined. The natural man's wisdom is so different from the wisdom of God that his wisdom is unimagined. It has to be revealed to us and God has revealed it in his word and in the person and teaching of Jesus Christ, the Word incarnate, the Word made flesh. And then you are sovereign over us. And indeed, if God is sovereign, which He is, then we ought to look at life in a whole new perspective. So that is the thread that connects all these topics in James. And as we move into chapter 2, you're going to start to see some of the topics he covered in 1 reappear. I was talking to Pastor Nathan this week, and we were, we kind of think the same way, which is why we get along, why we hired him. (laughs) It's easy to to bounce ideas off of, and we both think the same way Pastor Andy thinks, so it just works for us, and we're, we're linear type thinkers, and we like Paul because he lays out the argument, hits the peak, says, therefore, and here we go. Here's the right thing to think, therefore, here's the right way to act. If you mapped out James, it would look like this. And coming back, and these swirly patterns, and, and uh, you're tracking, and you're like, I'm following, and then you're like, you lost me, James. Oh, I'm back. Oh, wait. And... I half-jokingly said this week, he kind of writes more the way women think than men. Not a knock on women, but it's pretty much been demonstrated, and there's a book called Men Are Like Waffles and Women Are Like Spaghetti. We like our topics in compartments, and women find a connection between everything, all at the same time. And uh, it's led to, you know, much joking and humor, and at other times, not so much joking and humor, and a lot of frustration and exasperation. And so, um, I've had to retrain the way my mind thinks to follow James, and now that I'm tracking, I'm like, wow, James is so much more than I ever thought it was.
And we should expect that being the Word of God. So I hope I'm bringing that out as we study James together. And that thread that's connecting all these topics is this. The wisdom of God is different than the wisdom of man. If you're truly a believer and you're in Christ, you ought to be now replacing that worldly wisdom with wisdom from above. And he starts in chapter 1, and he says, first and foremost, believers, true believers, should be learning to rejoice in trials. That's a completely different way to live life. Without God, trials uh, are just terrible evil that comes upon us for no purpose. But if we're in Christ, we realize that trials bring us closer to God, and that's the greatest thing that could ever happen to us, to be closer to God. And so we don't rejoice because of the trial. We're not happy about the trial. We're not going out seeking trials. They have their way of finding us. But we can rejoice in the trial. That is a completely different way to do life. Secondly, he said, true believers learn to reject temptation and not blame God for their sins. It's worldly wisdom to say, not my fault, couldn't help it. The situation just came upon me. We don't want to take ownership for our sin. And ultimately, if you're going to blame shift from yourself ultimately the blame is going to end up in God's lap, and that should never be. Though God allows us, because He is sovereign, to enter into trials for our own good, He does not tempt us to sin. Even though the trial, because of our fallenness and our weakness, may result in us caving into temptation, it is not God's fault. Therefore, with God's help and His strength, we can reject temptation. We can make the right choices. We can repent. We can turn. Anytime I hear someone say, I just keep praying that God would just make me stop doing that. So if you don't stop doing it and you sin, it's God's fault because He didn't answer your prayer. That should never be. God wouldn't command us to do anything that we can't do. How cruel that would be. Number three, true believers learn to receive the Word of God by acting on it. Remember, be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Slow to spew forth your own ideas and your own wisdom and your own argument be quick to hear and listen to the Word of God, internalize it, meditate on it, study it, and then put a plan of action in place to act on it. Otherwise, you become that man, like James said, who looks into the mirror and sees his disheveled appearance and then walks away from the mirror and doesn't clean up his appearance. He didn't act on what he saw. And so, if we are true believers... We should not only love the Word of God, but we should be eager to go, wow, okay, God, I see what you're saying about me. Ooh, that's terrible. Well, praise God for your grace and your mercy. And I'm ready to make those changes. 
I'm not just going to puff myself up with knowledge and sit in church every Sunday and hear a sermon and then walk away and not make any changes. So that's how he introduces the book. And now he moves into the the next section. And we're going to move now, James is going to move us from the things that are mostly um, an individual thing. How do I individually deal with trials? How do I individually reject temptation? How do I individually receive the Word of God and put it into action? And now he's moving into how do I relate to others? How does this fallenness, this worldly wisdom, affect the way that I relate with other people? So I now have to take God's wisdom and apply it now in my dealings with other people. And the first opportunity we have to relate to other people is that first impression. And so he's going to talk to us this morning about partiality. The title of the sermon is, True Believers Don't Play Favorites. We learn to relate to others without partiality. We, we don't jump to conclusions about what's in a person's heart based on what we see on the outside. Now, he wouldn't be teaching us about this if it wasn't a problem. It's a problem for all of us. Everybody does this. You can't help it. It's being done to you, often when you don't even know it. People are looking at you and sizing you up. They haven't even gotten to know you, and they've already made jumped to some conclusions about you. I'm going to read the text, and I want you to be careful not just to be thinking in terms of, oh, this is a sermon about the evil rich and the poor people and how the rich people always get the best of everything, and get special treatment. Because, as Tim Keller teaches in his book, Counterfeit Gods, none of us considers ourselves to be that rich person. We'll always find somebody making more than us to say, well, the rich people were Americans. Compared to the rest of the world, we are stinking, filthy, rich We are blessed materially, which sometimes is a curse, as God tells us, because the poor shall inherit the kingdom. Not necessarily the materially poor, though, so we will talk more about that today also. So let me read the text and let it just kind of soak in. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes, and say, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. 
Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty... For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. As I was studying this week, we went from don't play favorites with the rich. And I thought, well, that's pretty simple. I can get through a huge chunk of the text here. No, God had other plans. Much more complicated text than that. And I'm glad that it is. Because again, we would, we would sit here and go, okay, look, rich guy comes in, poor guy comes in, don't give him the best seat in the house. Got it, done, go home, watch the Super Bowl. It's not that simple. First of all, we don't have ushers. Secondly, the best seat in the house in a Baptist church is the back. <laughs> right? Back row Baptists. So... Uh, <laughs> it might look more like this. Hey, look at that new family. Hey, they kind of, they, the way they're dressed and the way they carry themselves and their vocabulary they use. And hey, would you like to come to our small group? Versus, I think those are new people and they don't really fit in here. And I guess I'll shake hands, but I'm not going to invite them to my small group. Um, They'll probably need a ride, and I'm not going to go pick them up. And these thoughts go through our mind. And if they, if you say, "Oh, I don't think that way," you're deceiving yourselves. Maybe not in that particular way, but let God's word have its way in your heart today as we preach, as we let God's word preach to our heart. Earlier, James planted the seed about the rich and poor in chapter 1, after he talks about trials. And that little, that little chunk of wisdom seems like it just doesn't fit in the flow, but what he is talking about is don't assume that if you're facing financial difficulty, that that's a terrible thing. In fact, he calls it an exalted position. So in James's culture, being at the bottom of the socioeconomic food chain would be a, a bad place to be. And James says, mm, not so fast, maybe not so in God's kingdom. In order to come to Christ, you have to humble yourself and get to the end of your rope. Get, get, to, get to the end of yourself. And sometimes it's easier to get to the end of yourself when you've got nothing in your pocket. When the world's treating you as a bottom feeder it may be easier to come to Christ. In general, plenty of pride, prideful poor people. Plenty of prideful poor people. 
But Jesus did teach that it is harder for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, saying you cannot buy your way into heaven, but also saying that a rich man puts his trust in his riches. And so Jesus had told the rich young ruler, sell everything you have and follow, give it to the poor and follow me. Not as a requirement for getting into heaven, but to demonstrate that this man loved his position of status more than he loved Christ. And in case I forget to say it before we leave today, what this sermon is really about and what you will need to do when you go home this week is ask God to show you what is it about me that makes me feel special and a cut above others, makes me feel safe that people can't criticize me. For some, it is their wealth and their social status. We are having a national conversation in this country about the rich and the poor. And right now, it's kind of cool to be the poor. The rich left celebrity crowd is aligning themselves with the poor. I don't know how they pulled this off, but they did. Billionaires cozying up with the poor and saying, can you believe those rich white people taking everything from us? We've got to do something about this. And you're like, what? How did, how did, they, how did they pull that off? And so we have to be very careful as we go through this passage not to make assumptions about what James was talking about when he says rich and poor because we've been entrenched in this rich and poor argument here in America for a long time and it's dividing our nation. So I'll try to help you sort through that. But as far as personal application goes, just know that everybody is tempted to be partial to play favorites. Everyone in this room has correctly and incorrectly judged others based on appearance. Everyone has been correctly and incorrectly judged by others based on your appearance. Let's start with what this is not, okay? This, this is not what James is talking about. You cannot shut off your ability to discern and judge properly. There is a proper way to judge. If somebody came into the church and they were disabled and there was no seats, I would expect everyone in here to judge and say, this gentleman or this lady could use my seat. Have you just not based a judgment off of appearance? So you can't turn that off. And you shouldn't turn that off. We, we have to be discerning. Sometimes you have to go with what you know, first impressions. But what he's saying not to do is assume that's a better person because of the way they look, a godlier person, or somebody that I want to cozy up with because it'll make me feel better about myself, or somebody that I want to push away because it'll make me feel better about myself. The issue at stake here is that worldly wisdom 
Man compares himself to other men and makes value judgments based on those comparisons. That is not how it works in God's economy. God being whole, self-sufficient, needs not compare himself with anyone. God does not play favorites. He doesn't need to. He's not impressed with men. We, in our unredeemed state and our unredeemed flesh, are people pleasers. We care too much about what people think about us. We seek partiality, partial treatment for ourselves. We, we want special treatment. It's built into our fallen nature. So it may not be a rich and poor thing with you, so don't walk away here today saying, well, this doesn't apply to me. I'm middle class. <laughs> I'm not rich or poor. You've got something about you that you've learned since you were a very little child that makes you feel set apart from others. And it shouldn't be the thing that determines your self-worth. We'll talk at the end of the sermon about what ought to determine your self-worth as a person. So let's all agree, though, that it's human nature, then, to judge people by their appearance. And that there's good ways of doing that, but certainly our sin nature taints it and can turn it into sin very quickly. If this was small potatoes, James wouldn't include it in here. It's a big deal. 1 Samuel 16, 7. Remember Samuel the prophet. God says to go to Jesse's sons and appoint the next king of Israel. I've rejected Saul. We need a new king. They line up his sons. And even the prophet Samuel, a godly man, says, oh, it's got to be this one. Tall, dark, and handsome over here. Buff. Leader. And God says, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. It does say David was handsome. Ruddy and handsome, whatever ruddy means. Some people think he was a redhead or had reddish skin, or he, maybe he just, I don't know, but he played a mean harp, too. And he was good on the battlefield. So he still sounded like that guy who had a lot going for him. But God was still more interested in the heart. Again, let me say, this is not a sermon about rejecting all outward appearance. We like the church to look nice. It's proper. It's honoring and glorifying to God. And I think it says something to the world when they drive by if our building was in disrepair. The fact that it looks great doesn't mean necessarily that good teaching is going on in here. And we certainly can go too far with the outward appearance thing. And we can have good, healthy debates over 
how far is too far. I can tell you the number one reason people come to our church is by word of mouth and personal invitation, but a close second is our beautiful website. Get over it, people. I think the web's here to stay. It's not a fad. It's how the younger generation is making its decisions. You have a cruddy website. I'm not going. So we, we invest in a wonderful communications director, Angie Wiggins, to make sure we have a good-looking website. But if we stop there, shame on us. There better be something behind the website when you show up Sunday morning or people aren't going to stay. I'm going to wear nice clothes in the pulpit. Doesn't mean I'm a godlier man, but I think it demonstrates that I care and take seriously what I do. But a church full of 30-somethings would rather have their pastor wearing a t-shirt and have a tattoo on their wrist and maybe look a little shabby because that's what they say their kind of people should look like. So it's wrong for the youngster to come in here and say, oh, the old people in our church, they're all into suits and ties and they're legalists. And the old people are going, oh, these young people, they're all into their ripped jeans and they're, you know, they're legalists. And you're like, no, it's just fashion. What's in, the, what's in the heart? What's going on in the heart? Get to know people. Find out what's going on in the heart. Deuteronomy 10.17 For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. The reason we ought to be careful about this is because God is like this and we want to be like Him. Even in His judgment, Romans 2.9, there will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil. And God's saying, I don't care who you are. I don't care what nation you come from. I don't care what your family background is. I don't care how much your parents tithe. Of the Jew first and also of the Greek, but... Glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. I've told this story before, but early, I just love the story, early in MacArthur's ministry, uh, a very prominent elder's daughter wanted to get married in the church, and she wanted to marry an unbeliever. And he said, no, I can't do that wedding. And they said, we understand. We'll get one of the other pastors to do the wedding. And he said, no, nobody's doing this wedding. And they said, okay, we'll get somebody from outside to do it. And he said, no, nobody's doing this wedding in this church. It's God's church, and he defines Christian marriage. And they said, you're crazy. You're brand new here. You're going to lose your ministry or split the church. And he said, God shows no partiality. This is the right thing to do. And the elder did leave, and 400 people left with him. And the story goes, within a year, God brought 800 new believers. 
So we don't play favorites because God doesn't play favorites. Let's look into this word a little more closely. I think you'll be fascinated with this word. It's a Greek word made up of two different words. And it's only found in New Testament literature. In other words, God had to inspire writers of Scripture to coin a new phrase, a new term. I love that. And they combine the word prosopon, which is face, with lempsia from the verb lambano, to receive. So literally it means to receive the face. When you meet someone, receiving them is welcoming them and entrusting them, being cordial with them, giving them special honor based solely on their face or their appearance. Cool word. So why didn't a word like this exist? Because in Greco-Roman culture, that's not a problem. That's just how you do things. The outward appearance is very important, and they believe it does say everything you need to know about a person. Have you been to the Getty Villa? As the Roman Empire slipped deeper and deeper into the worship of man and appearance, look at their sculpture, look at their art. They just became fascinated with the human form. I was going to say this word, and I know I'm going to just butcher it. So there it is spelled out for, for you. This is the word that has to be translated in our Bibles, an attitude of personal favoritism. We have to use a whole bunch of words to translate this one word. And then James is going to provide an illustration. So, a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes. Another Greek word there for gold ring It's actually gold-fingered. And now you know where the James Bond villain's name came from. Goldfinger. Gold-fingered. The rich would often take their wealth and wear it. A, for safekeeping. And B, to show off. So... We like to watch Duck Dynasty, and the guy always has all the gold fingers, uh, all the rings at the beginning. They would often take their gold and sew it right into their clothing. So people would wear their wealth everywhere they went. You know the verse that um, compels women to not wear their hair with braided gold? They would even braid the gold right into their their hair. I guess it would be the equivalent of us just putting our financial portfolio on a sandwich board and walking through the church. Our wealth is... is, uh, I mean, we can show our wealth materially, right? We can impress. But in our culture, I think it's getting a little more difficult to tell... uh, the wealthy from the poor. And so you have to be careful with this illustration because it's almost over the top 
Well, of course we wouldn't do that. But we do it in more subtle ways. You meet someone in their vocabulary. You can tell they're educated, their topic of conversation. Everyone's talking about the Super Bowl, and they say, oh, I remember last year when we went to the Super Bowl, and, and you're like, oh, you went to the Super Bowl. I'm going to treat you a little more special. We drop names, you know. Oh, my, my cousin got me tic- tickets. Uh, he knows Tom Brady. They're, you know, they're, really? Could he get me tickets? That's what you're thinking, right? I'm going to buddy up with you. Because you know a person who knows a person who knows a person who knows someone famous. Suddenly, you're a better person than everyone in the room. Isn't that human nature? Should it be human nature? God's not pleased with that. So he comes into the assembly, and then the poor man comes in in dirty clothes, and you say, come sit here in the seat of honor. And to the poor man, you say, oh, go, go stand over there. He doesn't even get a seat. Or you can sit at my footstool, not even on my footstool. It's at my, my footstool. That's, that's, um, that's where slaves sit and wash feet. So you get the picture, or so we think we get the picture. I've heard this sermon preached many, many times, and it's so easy to then say, therefore, and give the illustration about the poor man who comes in the back door, and no one offers him a seat, and they're rude to him, and no one says hi, and it turns out it's the new senior pastor. Yeah. And it's a wonderful sermon illustration, and then you go on Snopes.com, and you find out it's a myth, it's an urban legend, but it still proves the point. Would that happen in our church? I have seen our church do rather well in this area, actually. All are treated with respect when they come through those doors. And I've seen people go out of their way to help people who I knew were drinking and they smelled really bad and beer cans tumbled out of their car when they got out. And our deacons were very loving and helpful And they saw a person in need. They helped the person to not embarrass themselves in front of the assembly and brought them somewhere quieter until they could discern whether or not it was appropriate for them to come in. Less out of because it'll disrupt the service and more I don't want this gentleman to embarrass himself in front of everyone. I also think another reason we do well in this area is because we have a diverse congregation. We have young and old. We have people all along the socioeconomic strata. We've got different music styles. It keeps us from any one type of person thinking we're the godly people. Does that mean we're perfect at it? No. Do we have to be on guard? Absolutely. The human heart is deceptive. We can all slip into Pharisaism rather easily. Legalism. A lot of the more modern commentators are looking at this passage differently, and I'm tending to agree with them. The word assembly is synagogue. We have to be careful not to 
take our modern world and assume that's what was going on in James's world. The synagogue was also a place uh, not just to worship, but to learn and to have disputes settled. It was their court. And because James uses legal language in verse 4, have you not become judges with evil motives? In verse 6, is it not the rich who are dragging you into court? He may have in mind a situation where the assembly is the elders assembling to hear a dispute. And in walks the two people involved in the dispute, and you say to the rich one, oh, you sit here in the place of honor, and the poor one, you sit over there. The poor person already knows he's not getting a fair trial. And we say, well, you know, would that really happen? Folks, we have been blessed to live in a country where our legal system, at least until this day, works amazingly well when you compare it to the legal systems of other countries around the world. It is nearly impossible to get a fair hearing in court for the poor in other parts of the world. If you don't have some money to grease the palms, you're not going to get a fair trial. And, in fact, in an honor-shame culture where your honor, your public honor, means more to you than anything else, and you would think, well, taking bribes and giving bribes, that would be dishonorable, you're thinking like a Christian. In other cultures, being able to give a bribe is an honorable thing because I have enough money to bribe that guy. He doesn't even have enough money to give a bribe. The entire biblical system of morality is turned on its head. This is the environment James is speaking into. In fact, when we hear James talk about the rich and the poor, we need a new definition here to make the whole rest of the book make sense. So... Commentator Bruce Molina has this to say, and here's a guy who's like dedicated his life to studying first century Mediterranean culture. He says, Poor persons seem to be those in, in first century Mediterranean culture, in Palestine, specifically in our text, who cannot maintain their inherited status due to the circumstances that befell them and their families. In the perception of People in a limited goods society, limited goods society, it's hard to accumulate massive amounts of wealth. So how do you judge people socioeconomically in a limited goods society? The majority of people are neither rich nor poor. Those aren't the designations. They're just equal in that each has a status to maintain in some honorable way. Okay, so wherever you are in the pecking order, I'm fine with that as long as I have dignity there. As long as you honor me and my family. Maybe we're not wealthy vineyard owners, but we are very proud carpenters. And we can relate to that, right? 
But poor then were people like, say, a family who were carpenters and something happened to their family, some catastrophe hit, and they can't even be carpenters anymore. They are destitute now. They have no way to restore their dignity. They have to beg now. They're reduced to the most shameful position in an honor-shame culture. The orphan, the widow, the blind, the cripple. Sorry, I'm using old-fashioned language there for effect. I know that's not PC. Thus, in this context, rich and poor really refer to the greedy and the socially ill-fated. The terms do not characterize two poles of society as much as two minority categories. Lots of rich and poor people. But the rich and the poor, James is talking about, is the shameless uh, drive to expand one's wealth. That kind of greed. To step on other people and think, I am better people than you because of my wealth. That's the kind of rich. I wouldn't blink twice about dragging a poor person into court and bilking out of them what little they have left. The poor, then, are those who have the inability to maintain one's inherited social status of any rank. They've got nowhere left to go. This still goes on in the Middle East. I have a friend who's a Marine, high-ranking Marine. If you're a Marine, I don't understand all the ranks. He was some kind of battalion commander. Does that sound right? He led one of the surges into Fallujah. And then once the insurgents were pushed out, their job was to train up the local indigenous police force to police their own community. And so they were training up men to be officers, and they caught one of these officers taking bribes. And they said, what are you doing? This is dishonorable, and you hated it when it was done to you. How could you turn around now and do it to others? And he said, you don't understand. This is the way we do things here. If I don't take this bribe, I will insult this person, and they will have no respect for me. Pretty hard to import Western Christianized value system into a whole different culture. We do know one thing. God cares for the poor. And people say, well, if God cares for the poor, why doesn't he lift them out of their poverty and make everybody equally wealthy? Folks, that's socialism. That's Marxism. That's not a a God concept. Jesus said you will always have the poor with you. And actually, if you look closely at statistics, for the most part, people move through the social strata through your lifetime. Everyone in here been poor at one time? The problem is, as we get wealthier, we often still consider ourselves poor. Again, because there's always somebody making more money than us somewhere. 
the top 1% of the world's earners own 50% of the wealth right now. Except the top 1% of earners, those people don't stay in the top 1%. If you look at the list 20 years from now, probably Bill Gates will still be in the list. But it turns over. What did Paul say in Philippians? Whether I have little or much, I've learned to be content in all things. Deuteronomy 15.7, before Israel is going to go into the land, God says this, If there is a poor man with you, one of your brothers, in any of your towns, in your land, which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart nor close your hand from your poor brother, but you shall freely open your hand to him and shall generously lend him sufficient for his need in whatever he lacks. Beware that there is no base thought in your heart saying, Oh, the seventh year, the year of remission is near. Every seven years, debts had to be canceled. And it's not seven years from when somebody loaned the money. It was every seventh year on the calendar. So if somebody came to borrow money and it was the six and a half year, God's saying, don't be like, oh, great. There's no way I'm getting this money back. Now, if that, if that brother who is poor is working the system, shame on him. I don't think that's what God is talking about here. If God has blessed you with plenty and you can give to others, and in this system, if calamity befell somebody in the six and a half year, that's, that's not their fault. And so we have compassion, we have mercy on those, because that could be us any day, any one of us. It doesn't take much to change your financial situation. I don't care how much insurance you buy. Poor planning, poor spending, shame on me. That's not what we're talking about here. Even then, I would rather us all err on the side of generosity and mercy than, well, they had it coming. You shall generously give to him, and your heart shall, be, shall not be grieved when you give to him, because for this thing the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all your undertakings. The Lord says he will bless this generous heart that is willing to help out a brother. Now, again, we're not talking about a complete lack of discernment. Our deacons sit down with people who come in and need help, and their heart immediately is bent towards, we want to help. We want to write the check, but we need to know more about you. Make sure this isn't going to be spent on drugs. Make sure it happens. Make sure it's actually going to go to what the person says it'll go to, so we often write the check directly to the electric company or the gas company, so it can't just be cashed for whatever purpose. Are there bad habits here that we could help you break so this doesn't happen again, so you're right back in here next month? Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ? That's the most important question on our hearts when we help people. God had other laws to protect the poor. You were not allowed to charge interest when you loan to the poor. 
unlike these check cashing places down in Bakersfield, 30% interest, 33% interest. And there's always a liquor store next door to the cash checking place. Are they going to be able to stand before God one day and say, hey, they wanted the loan. They're stupid enough to take the loan. That, that's their problem, not mine. I don't think so. I don't think that's going to fly with God. Yes, if I'm poor because I've made poor choices, I need to take responsibility for my poorness. Even if I didn't make wrong choices, it's wrong of me to covet what others have if I'm poor. But at the same time, we need to guard against an attitude of, well, this is America, you make your own way. If they didn't make their way, there must be some reason why they didn't, and shame on them. And That is not the attitude God wants us to have about the poor. Consider this, spiritually, all of us were bankrupt. Bankrupt. God didn't show partiality and say, well, now there's, there's somebody who's a great law-abiding, godly, righteous person. I'll save him. I'll save her. In fact, and this may be humbling for us, God says in 1 Corinthians, not many the wise, not many the intelligent, not many the good-looking. Folks, we are not the cream of the crop. And God does that so that He'll be exalted and not His people. He's chosen the foolish things of the world. The wisdom of God is so amazing, not because we have this amazing wisdom on our own. James is going to base his arguments against partiality from the law of God and then from the teachings of Christ, and then eventually he's going to blend the two together. And so we'll look at that next week. What I'd like for you to do this week is keep reading this section, James 2, 1 to 13, asking yourself, where do I play favorites? Where do I play favorites? What you'll discover is the place in your own heart where you think you're special and makes you a cut above, you will tend to play favorites with others who are like that. It makes us feel better about ourselves. It makes us feel more dignified. It makes us feel like we can now reject any criticism people are leveling at us. If I put myself here and you here, that feels safe to us. That is a terrible thing to do. So what is it? If it's not the money thing, what makes you feel here? And by the way, folks, sometimes the poor can say, I'm better than the rich because I'm not prideful and rich. James is giving us one specific example here. 
Let God show you that place in your heart. Don't be afraid to let Him go there. That's where the true change is going to happen. If whatever that thing is, you'll know it's your thing when you ask this question, if God took that away from me, could I handle that? What would I have left to make me feel good about myself? God wants us to be on level ground at the foot of the cross. God wants us to ground our self-worth in Christ. That He would die for us when we were still wretched sinners. And so no matter who I am and what I accomplish and what people think of me, it really doesn't matter because Christ loves me And I don't even understand why he does, but he does, because he's loving. Why would he want to love somebody like me? As long as you are able to say, well, of course he would love someone like me. You don't get the gospel. But that might be a scary place for you to go, and you need to be able to go there. Why? Why Why would God love me? That makes no sense. Do you know who I am? Do you know what thoughts go through this heart? Do you know how I judge others and judge myself better than others? We need to become like Paul. I am the chief of sinners. You want to see a sinner? Look no further. Here's people's exhibit A. And yet, the God of the universe loves me. That makes me special. Sometimes you hear unbelievers say, oh, you Christians, you think you're so special. Well, you have it all wrong. You could be special too. But first you have to admit, I'm not special. I'm a filthy, rotten sinner just like everyone else. I'm, I'm incredibly unspecial. But in Christ, I will boast in the cross. I will boast in, in Christ. That is a beautiful, wonderful, freeing place to be. I can now interact with anybody on this planet and not have to play favorites and not be afraid of how they're judging me or sizing me up. So that's our homework assignment for all of us. What, what's that thing that we think makes us worthy of God playing favorites with us? And repent of that and turn away from that. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you wanting to be humble people and realizing that we're not as humble as we should be. We we sit under the teaching of your word and your wisdom and allow it to tell us things about ourselves that we'd rather not admit. And yet we're coming to learn that that is where freedom and wholeness and peace will come from when we walk through that door of humility. Show us, Lord, each of us this week where we've learned over a lifetime of grounding and rooting our pride and our self-worth. Forgive us for times we play favorites. 
and esteem people based on outward, temporal, earthly material instead of looking on the heart like you do. May this be a place where everyone feels welcome at the foot of the cross and surrounded by other sinners filled with the love of Christ. If that happens, this place will truly be a light, a shining city on a hill. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you.